So Philemon, 1 to 22. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, and also to Aphia, our sister, and Artipus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing as we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, who became my son whilst I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful to you, both you and me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favour you do would not seem forced but be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that he might have bleh, was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you. In the Lord, refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing, prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Anyway, um, good to see you all. And uh, we are going to do a short series now in Philemon, or Philemon, or however you'd like to pronounce it. I don't know what the correct pronunciation is. And uh, so it's Philemon, uh, Philemon. Um, uh, Just an introduction, and, sorry, just a sec. Okay, so Paul was in prison, we think, when he wrote this letter, probably in a Roman prison, chained to a Roman guard, some of the time at least, but we realise when he was later imprisoned in Rome, in Timothy, it tells us that he was allowed his writing gear, so he probably, well, he clearly did have his writing gear with him. Now, I don't know about you, when I'm working, I need complete silence. Now, my kids will put music on, Julie will put music on, it's fine for them, but uh, to, when they're working, I mean, but I can't just concentrate like that at all. I have to have complete silence. I wish I could, but I can't. But can you imagine Paul 
trying to tune into God to write God's word to God's people while chained to a guard, and at other times all the distractions that come from being in jail, noise, fights, all sorts of things going on. But Paul doesn't allow himself to think too much about his current predicament. And to avoid negative and soul-destroying introspection while he's in there, he uses his time wisely. But how, if you put yourself in his shoes, how could you not dwell upon your awful circumstances that are opposed on you by others? And how could you not worry about what might become of you when you're in jail? Well, perhaps he did think about it sometimes, but what we see here is that he chose to look above and beyond all of that. Why? Because in verse 1 in Philemon is that he saw himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. In other words, he saw that God had allowed him to be incarcerated. So because God had allowed him to be um, incarcerated, um, he was going to make the very most of the time he had to serve the Lord while he was locked up. And that meant he'd be looking how to serve and how to encourage others rather than get locked into himself, which is so often what we can do in difficult circumstances when we feel hemmed in and trapped. And just like Jesus before him, in suffering, Paul thought of others. If we look at Jesus for a second, when the nails went in upon that cross, Jesus prays for those who nailed him. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And then in Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians 2.8. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't know what they were doing, some of them. And this thinking of others in suffering, and when we look at Jesus again, there he is hanging on the cross, and yet he looks at John, He's at the foot of the cross and he tells John to look after his mother Mary in John 19, 26, 27. I mean, can you imagine thinking of those things when you're in excruciating agony hanging on a cross? And then later, even though both criminals that were hanging either side of him hurled insults at him, later one of those criminals acknowledged his guilt when he saw Jesus' innocence and recognised that this Jesus was who he said he was and he had a kingdom not of this world. So he says, Jesus, Lord, Luke 23, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And even then Jesus turned to him and said, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Now that was moments, if you look at Luke, that was moments, he was just on the threshold before the midday sun was snuffed out and darkness covered the land and the sins of the world were laid on him. And yet, just at that moment, or just on the threshold of that, he shows love and mercy and forgiveness, not a thought for himself in his own cruel situation, but he's still leading others to himself, serving others to the bitter end out of love for the Father. What an incredible thing. The most excruciating suffering, and he's thinking of others. In fact, and it was all for the Father too, uh, just before the cross, Luke twenty-two forty-two. Jesus says in Gethsemane, Gethsemane, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, 
Yet not my will, but yours be done. I'm just going to get, I'm going to just glorify you right to the very end, no matter how much it hurts. And Jesus, also like Paul, as opened up this passage with, recognized, Jesus recognized at that point he was a prisoner of the Lord. Have you ever seen that before? To think that Jesus thought that about himself. Because Pilate, on the trial, says to Jesus, John 19, don't you realize I have power either to free you or crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. The Romans put Jesus on the cross, but above the Romans he saw the Sovereign Father and he submitted to his will. In fact, Isaiah, written 700 years before this came to be, speaking of the coming Jesus, Isaiah 53:10. yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. And to cause him to suffer. Though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And then it says this. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life. That's resurrection. And be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. And he will bear their iniquities or sins now thank God he did because if Jesus had not looked beyond his terrible circumstances to the God who would vindicate him where would you be where would I be now we wouldn't be here there'd be no such thing as churches most probably there'd certainly be no salvation you'd still be in your sins you'd be awaiting destruction you'd have no hope no new life no resurrection no future if Jesus hadn't have done exactly what he did and look beyond his suffering to the Father. Paul actually says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ. We're, be, we're to be pitied more than anyone. And Hebrews 12 says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. How do you keep going in difficult circumstances? You fix your eyes upon the Lord. He put you there, ultimately, overarchingly. He will give you power in there. Just focus on him, serving him while you're there, by serving others in his power and for his glory. He will bring you out in his time. And then, although awful trials are designed by God to make you and I more like Christ, they're also designed to bring others to Christ and make them more like Christ. Sometimes we forget that. It's all about us, isn't it? How does that happen? Because they see the way you live in the difficulty. God incarcerated Paul. But look what good God brought out of it for others. Paul wrote many of the New Testament scriptures while he was locked up. And those letters, including this one, as we shall see, are incredibly powerful. 
And Paul probably, it's almost impossible that he would know that in 2,000 years later, this very letter and many of his other letters, while he was banged up, are still being used to bring people to Christ and bring them on in Christ. I think on that final day, you can imagine someone like Paul being utterly staggered at the millions of souls who would never have come to Christ had Paul not had his wings clipped in that way and his movement restricted so that he could write scripture. Because if you follow Paul, I don't think he'd ever sat still long enough. He'd be out there preaching to all. Otherwise, if God hadn't put him in prison, if God hadn't laid him aside, he wouldn't have been as productive as he still is now. He's reached millions over the ages rather than just being in one geographical area at a time. It's pretty amazing. That was even true of Jesus, wasn't it? Jesus was walking around in geographical area at the time when he was down here. It's when he sent the Holy Spirit that it had worldwide implications. You see, sometimes the most unfavourable things can be brought out, out of that can be brought many, many blessings for many other people. And it's not just about you and me. God's way meant the whole world was still being reached by what Paul wrote in jail. I wonder if you're in a place you don't want to be at the moment. Maybe you feel your wings are clipped. Maybe your movement's restricted whether that be mentally, psychologically, emotionally, or physically. Or maybe there's some other difficulty. But however debilitating, physically, mentally, emotionally, you can still serve the Lord in them. You can pray. You can encourage others by sending messages, you can, by phoning people. You can be witnessing across the world now through the internet, which was something we could never do before. With your eyes firmly fixed on Jesus, knowing he's put you where you are right now, no matter how unfavourable, you can continue to serve him, therefore, as you serve others. And by that witness, you may even bring others to know him and grow in him. You see, sometimes when I'm in trouble, or if I'm in a trial, all I can think is, what is the Lord trying to do in me? It's not sometimes just about that. It's about others around me too. What witness? How can I grow others in the way I'm dealing with this situation? The great hymn says this, Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, in other words, by your own understanding or how you feel. But trust him for his grace. Behind, behind a frowning providence, there hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet may be the flower. That's it, see? Well, when am I ever going to get on with Philemon? Well... We're doing that already, but we're going to do it now. So Paul writes to Philemon. 
And Philemon had a slave called Onesimus. Although I like Becky's interpretation, Onesimus. I think that's good. And Paul encourages Philemon to treat his slave, Onesimus, like God treats him. Paul is writing to the Colossian believers and Philemon was one of those. And in Colossians 4.1 he says, Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. In other words, just because you are, and it's wrong anyway, we know that, but that was the situation at the time, slave trading, uh, slave ownership. And uh, of course the Bible never condoned that. But what it did do is instruct uh, slave owners to treat them properly you know he's basically saying to Philemon and others don't think you're better than anyone else including the slave especially the slave God your master treats you with love and kindness you do the same to them you be a witness to them you, you treat them like you would want to be treated yourself and Paul is seeking to do this with Philemon because he's urging him to treat his slave Onesimus well. Why? Because something's gone wrong between Philemon and Onesimus. It looks like Onesimus has stolen from Philemon and then ran off. Verse 18 gives us a clue. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. Now, Onesimus could face the death penalty, according to Roman law at that time, for doing that. And that was one of the choices that were available to Philemon, that was a choice that he could make. But God was looking out for Onesimus, because while he was on the run, Onesimus trusted Christ and got saved. Verse 10, I appeal to you, For my son Onesimus, who became my son, Paul says, when I was in chains. Or maybe he visited Paul in prison and Paul led him to Christ. Or maybe Onesimus met someone else first while he was on the run, heard about Jesus, trusted Jesus, and then was then introduced to Paul. But he definitely met Paul because Paul calls him my son. There's a relationship there. And Paul calls Timothy his son as well elsewhere. Now, Paul, as far as we know, wasn't married and didn't have physical children. But he did have spiritual children. Those who he took under his wing and raised as new believers to become disciples. And that's what Paul means when he calls Onesimus his son in verse 11 to 13. That was kind of a regular thing, you know, to adopt someone and take them under your wing. Maybe not so much now, but it should be. Mature Christian. Do you seek out newer Christians or those who need bringing on in their faith? Are you on the lookout for them? Do you have someone that you can adopt as your spiritual son or daughter whom you take under your wing and encourage in their new faith? We're to go out into the world and make disciples of Christ. That includes bringing someone to Jesus, but it particularly means sticking with them afterwards. The amount of Christians, you know, who, or people who come to Christ and uh, profess salvation in Christ, and then no one gets alongside them and they kind of fizzle out. 
A disciple is a learner, a learner of Christ in this context. And in order to learn, you need to be lovingly taught and nurtured in the faith. Cast your mind back to when you first became a Christian, when you first got saved. Did you have anyone you could talk to or share with about your faith in that way? Did you have anyone that you could look to and ask questions for and be discipled by? For some of you, the answer might be no. And it's tough when that happens. Because sometimes we could think, right, they're saved, now let's just leave them to it. Well, let me share this with you. Evangelistic events, big evangelistic events, were quite common a few years back. And there would be surveys afterwards. So let's just say this. A hundred people would appear to come to Jesus at that event. They'd go up to the altar or they'd put their hand up for Christ or whatever. But often these surveys would show you that only 50 were still going on with Jesus a year later, sometimes less. And that's why when a hundred hands would go up to receive Christ at the event, others would look on and say those, fingers are, those figures are evangelistic because they stretch the numbers. Because in reality, the actual amount of those who've been truly saved were probably only about a half of that number in a year's time. You who've been in the faith for a while, see the importance. Look for someone who's a recent believer or who's even seeking. It's essential not only to bring folks to know Jesus, that's what this afternoon's about, Christianity Explored, but to stick with them so that they become disciples and followers afterwards. The, the, the roll on from Christianity Explored should be discipleship explored, and often is. But it should be each one of ours responsibility as older believers. And then this, Philemon appears to be a stand-up saint. That means an outstanding Christian. Verse 1, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. Paul seems to know, well he does know, Philemon very well. And he is a fellow worker in sharing the gospel. And verse 2, to, to Aphia, our sister, that's probably his wife, we don't know. And to Archippus, our fellow soldier. So he's a fighter for the faith, serving Jesus as his commander. And to the church that meets in your home. There were many house churches back then. And uh, I'm going to talk about that a bit next week. I think we've lost some of that. It's very important. Philippian was clearly cloaked. Philippian. Philemon. It's so confusing. Anisimus I don't know what the pronunciation is. I'll start making up other words for it now. Philemon was clearly close with other strong faithful believers. He was part of a house church fellowship which will lend itself to a small congregation. Making close friendships with others who are on fire for the Lord, not just say they're Christians, but are on fire for the Lord, who want to go further than the Lord, is key to becoming like Christ. My son's very good at football, but if he's in a team that isn't very good at football, it's not going to grow him and uh, get him better at football until he gets into a better team where there's better players than him that he can start aspiring up to. 
Being part of a small group, if you're in a larger church, is therefore key for you. And it's key for others to grow in their love for Christ in those groups. And if you don't like the small groups that are going on, make one of your own. There's no problem. But get with others. So he was a stand-up saint. And he was close with with, uh, other believers. And then his love for Christ spilled over into love for other believers. Verse 4. I always thank my God, says Paul, as I remember Philemon in my prayers, because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. That's Christians. You see, Philemon was so outstanding that Paul perpetually heard about his great faith and love. He was such a stand-up saint that whenever Paul remembered him in prayer, he gave thanks for him. I wonder, you know, whether... uh, People give thanks for you when they remember you in their prayers because of your evident love for Christ and others. I wonder if people give thanks for me because of my evident love for Christ and others. Maybe not. But isn't it a wonderful thing if you're following the Lord and when people think of you and pray for you, they rejoice and give thanks instead of go, oh, here's another thing we need to pray for. Not that you shouldn't, but what an encouragement. Now, maybe those that like you do rejoice when they remember you in prayer, but it's not just about some, but all the saints Philemon loved that he came into contact with. And that is incredibly hard, isn't it? Especially when other Christians cross you, let you down, betray your trust, like Onesimus did to Philemon. Very difficult to thank the Lord there. Also, Philemon is an encourager, verse 7. Your love, says Paul, has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints, of the Christians. And also, he probably met Jesus under Paul's preaching, verse 19. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. That is often Paul's way of saying that I led you to Christ. He was also hospitable. He says in verse 22, And one thing more, prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Paul felt he could ask because he knew that um, Philemon loved to have him back and would definitely put him up because he'd been praying for him to come. He'd been praying to be hospitable. Wow, that's a challenge, praying to be hospitable. You know, a few years back in Christendom, or Evangelicumdom, it was the norm to invite people over for Sunday lunch. And that's still a good thing, but for some, busy lives do make that very hard to do now. But that doesn't mean we suddenly stop being hospitable, though. Why not meet someone for coffee somewhere? Or dessert. The Americans, they don't invite you for dinner anymore. They invite you for dessert. They have their dinner and they think they can have come, I'll just come afterwards and have the leftovers, some ice cream maybe. But it doesn't matter. They invite you over for a dessert. Invite folks to do something with you in the week. You know, some people don't get to see anyone in the week, only on Sundays. Why not visit someone who's on their own or in need? 
if you have that time. If you have a spare room and somebody does need to be put up for the night and it's someone you know, why not put them up for the night? You see, there are all sorts of inventive, creative, different ways we can show kindness and hospitality. Maybe if someone's naturally shy, hard to talk to, why not invite them somewhere, but also invite others who are outgoing? That way everyone shares in the conversation. And if you can't do any of that, why not show hospitality by going on the drinks rotor at park just once a month? <laughs> All these things are marks of a stand-up saint. Philemon was one. Are you? Am I? We're almost there. The other thing about Philemon is that his love for the Lord was demonstrated, shown, in his obedience to the Lord. Paul writes, verse 21, confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. Onesimus had betrayed Philemon's trust, he had stolen, he had ran off. Will this very loving stand-up saint who is now being tested big time, will he show mercy still and love and forgiveness to the one who so wronged him? Will he welcome him back or not? Here's a big test for Philemon. Will his love stretch to being willing to forgive and reconcile? You know, we can say we're really loving and we can love those that love us, but when people cross us, it's a different ballgame. Are we truly willing to forgive and reconcile those that have hurt us? Paul seems to be confident that Philemon will. We never get to know. We'll get to know when we get to meet Philemon, no doubt. But while Onesimus was on the run, he came to Christ. What a bonus. Have you ever thought that? Praying for your enemy who's not a believer to come to Christ. That's one way of sorting them out. And it seems now he wants to reconcile with Philemon. But there's been a lot of hurt now, hasn't there? There's been harsh words spoken out of unrighteous anger. There's been built up resentment. There's been grief. There's been sadness. There's been disappointment. There's been loss. There's that urge sometimes you're rehearsing in your mind how you might, what you might say to teach them a lesson or to retaliate or to take things into your own hands, or to give them what they deserve. We've all been there, sometimes we're up at night, we're rehearsing, you think, no, this isn't good. But, you know, you struggle with it because of the damage and hurt. But as long as Philemon continued to trust and love the Lord and let God's love flow through him to others, as he had been doing up until then, he would not be able to withhold forgiveness, not for long. When we act without mercy and we're unwilling to forgive and we seek to punish and destroy and to cancel, that's because we forget that Christ had every right to do all of that to us. We all stood before God guilty of sin, doing our own thing, living 
as if he didn't exist. And yet still he sent his son to pay the price for our rebellion. And yet what did we do at first? We shunned him. We ignored him. We continued to sin against him. We rejected him. We thought, it doesn't matter that you came and died for me. Who cares about that? Yet he came to us, not holding all of that against us. And instead of wrath, you found mercy. And instead of hate, you found love from the one you defended. And instead of being cut off and cancelled, you were reconciled. And instead of God making your life a misery because of what you'd done to him, he pours out blessing. That's the difference, you see. That's God's love in action. When you love your enemies and those that have wronged you, And now like Paul to Philemon, he also requires you to do the same to the one who's wronged you. You know, it grieves me, and I understand it of course, but it grieves me that sometimes when I play football, I was listening to a couple of them, they haven't spoken to family members for 30 years. Now I know how that can be, and I know it can be complicated, but (laughs) you've got to do something. Colossians 3, still writing to Philemon, one of the Colossian believers. Colossians 3.13, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive, here's the standard, as the Lord forgave you. Take your eyes off what others did to you. Remember what you did to Christ. And how he didn't treat you as your sins deserved. Instead he poured out his mercy. You know Spurgeon says, after 10,000 sins, he loves you as infinitely as ever. That's what we're to model. To some degree. Only by the Spirit. So you need to ask yourself and I need to ask myself. And I have of recent times. Who are you, a fellow sinner, to withhold forgiveness from another sinner? There is no higher ground. There but for the grace of God we all go. And to forgive as the Lord forgave you means... To get to the point, not where you never remember wrong, because you're not like God. There will be things that come up. But when you do remember it, you eradicate it and you crucify it and you treat that person like they never wronged you in the first place. If you feel like killing them, kill them with kindness. Such a challenge. And yet it's such a beautiful thing. It's a battle. But the fruit of it is one of the sweetest things in life. Why? Because that kind of forgiveness mirrors and gives you just a little glimpse of just a little part of the total hugeness of forgiveness that Christ has given you. And you get a chance to participate in the same.
I think my greatest growth curves ever have not been listening to sermons, but doing ones like this and going to people who have hurt me or I've hurt them and to stick with them and sort it out until this is the product. That you can look at them as if they never did anything to you in the first place. Forgive us the Lord forgave you. Amen. Father, just before we sing, we want to pray because uh, this is a tough subject and we'll see more of it in more detail in the coming weeks. Um, and Lord, it's, um, it's not easy. It goes against everything we are in terms of our sinful natures. But Lord, with your Holy Spirit, with your power, yes, we can. And yes, we will. But we have to stay consistent. And like Philemon, maybe we've been going on great. Maybe we are quite an outstanding Christian. We'd never say that about ourselves, but maybe others think that and they give thanks for us in their prayers and everything. But then something like this comes into our experience and rocks us. Help us to forgive by the power of your Spirit as you forgave us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.